welcome to another episode of The King's Business, a podcast designed to help business leaders apply biblical principles in both their personal and professional lives. I want to thank you for joining us today, and it is my hope that you will walk away with added wisdom to your life so you can go into the world and be a positive influence on others by doing The King's Business. As always, here's the layout that each episode will generally follow. First, we will introduce this week's topic. Next, we will connect it to scriptural references and examples. Then, we will go over a few ways for how we can apply the biblical teaching into the leadership of others. And lastly, we will close with open-ended questions you can answer personally or share with your followers or teams for deeper discussion. Well, without further ado, let's get to today's topic, stewarding the vision of your followers. I imagine the first place we need to start is at the beginning, specifically, what is the definition of stewardship? It's a word we hear a lot, perhaps not as much as we used to, but it's an important word nonetheless. I found two definitions I really like for this word. The first is this, the job of supervising or taking care of something, such as an organization or property, and an ethic that embodies the responsible planning and management of resources. I really like how the second definition highlights the fact that Stewardship is more than just a simple job of being a custodian to something. It's more of an ethic, which speaks more to the character of the person that's been called to that stewardship. Additionally, it's important that we understand stewardship means we are caring for something that does not belong to us. This is the real critical part of this. Stewardship means we are caring for something that does not belong to us. Now, you might say, well, I feel like a lot of things belong to me. I feel like my house, my cars, my family, that all belongs to me. As a non-believer, that's a perfectly valid viewpoint to have. However, as followers of Christ, we know there's more to the story. In fact, everything in creation belongs to God, the Creator, and this includes our possessions, our children, our money, our blessings, our talents, even our lives. We exist because God allowed it. Let that sink in for just a moment. Everything that we have, everything that is part of our perceived reality and existence is a gift from God. God allows us to have a temporary authority over the things he's invested with us. Now, it's important that once we start thinking about this, that we can change our perspective to see that everything we think is ours ultimately belongs to God. And when we change our perspective to understand that none of this belongs to us, we can start to make better decisions. What do I mean by that? Well, we will be more likely to show care for something because we know it doesn't belong to us, and we will have to give an account for it one day. The Bible is very clear about this. We will all, no matter what, have to give an accounting to God for how we handled, or for a better business word, invested all of the resources and talents and possessions that he put under our control. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty sobering thought to know that one day I'm going to have to stand before the creator of everything and tell him, how I handled or mishandled everything that was given to me. If I could take a quick sidebar here, 
I take this very personally when it comes to parenting. I have one child, and I probably will only have one child. I think we're just going to be a one-child family. And there have been so many times where I have made decisions that were not popular, particularly with my in-laws. There were times when I would say, no, I'm sorry, my daughter can't go do X, Y, and Z with you. And we've had some animosity because of this. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. And the point I always come back to is the fact that one day I'm going to have to stand before God and say, here's what I did with this most precious possession that you put in my care. I can't imagine having to say to God, well, I'm sorry that this tragedy occurred, but I guess I wasn't giving it the thought I should, or I didn't think it was a big deal, or I'm surprised it happened too. I never want to have to have those conversations with God the Creator. Everything I do, all the decisions I make in my parenting is based from the perspective that one day God is going to ask me for an accounting of how I raised his child, and I want to give a good accounting. So now that we have a working definition for stewardship, now let's turn our attention to the biblical context of stewardship. Namely, what does God's word, God's timeless, transcendent word, say about the topic of stewardship? Now, my first thought whenever I thought of this topic of talking about stewardship was the story of the talents or the parable of the talents. And there's more than one. So for this example, we're going to be referring to the one Jesus told about the master who is going away on a long trip. So he calls three of his servants forward. To the first servant, he gives one talent. To the second servant, he gives two. And to the third servant, he gives five. Now, a talent was a a unit of gold. So this is essentially, he is giving them money to care for and to steward while he is away. So if you've read the story, you know where we're going. But in case you haven't, let's do a quick recap. The servant with the five talents goes out and invests his master's money and in turn brings in five more talents. He doubles the money. A similar story with the second servant. The second servant takes the two talents put into his trust by the master and turns those into four talents. Now, the third servant is a little more cautious than the other servants in his master's household. Instead, he is very fearful of the master. He doesn't want to lose the master's money. So what he does is he goes out into a field, digs a hole, and buries the talent, waiting for the master to return. And in his mind, he's done the smart thing because he hasn't lost the master's money. And I'm sure there are plenty of times where you and I probably could relate to that servant, where we say, you know what, I feel like it'd be better if I didn't lose it at all. You know, we play it very cautious, very conservative. Well, as the story unfolds, when the master gets back, he calls his servants forward and asks for an account from them. The first servant says, Master, I took your five talents and I turned them into ten. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come, rejoice and fellowship with your master. And he was given more authority, more control over more talents from the master. The story is the same for the second servant. The second servant comes to his master and says, Master, I've taken my two talents that you've invested in me, and I've turned them into four. Well done, my good and faithful servant, the master says. Come, enjoy, and rejoice with your master at his table. Now, the third servant comes forward, and he says to his master, Master, 
You're a very discerning man. You reap where you do not sow. I'm very afraid of you is basically what he's saying because you're a hard person to impress. You are able to find wealth where you didn't necessarily invest it. So he says, I buried your talent. Here it is. I'm giving it back to you. Now at this point, again, like most of us, we're probably saying, hey, okay, at least he gives it back to him. He should be happy with that. It may be if not happy, then at least neutral. The master's furious. How could you? You lazy and wicked servant. Lazy and wicked. Very, very strong words. He says, at the very least, you could have invested my money with the bankers so I could have earned interest. Essentially what the master is saying here is that would have been a safe approach to just invest my money with the money changers or the money lenders, and I would have at least gotten interest off of that. Even that marginal increase would have been better. I think that's an important part of the story. And at that point, he casts a servant out. He says, take what this servant has and give it to the one with 10. I think this is a neat parable because I think this parable is indicative of how we're going to be viewed when the end time comes, when we all have to give an account to the ultimate master, to our creator, God. And I think the one that has been invested with a lot will have um, a lot of responsibility and a lot to account for. And it'll be the same for the one who had fewer talents and fewer still. And while I'm sure a lot of us, hopefully, will get to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, I can't help but wonder about the people that have given, have been invested with the talents. And in this case, we're talking about gifts. Um, we're talking about people who have been given abnormal abilities, important, good abilities in certain areas and have squandered them or have seen them and thought, you know, I just don't want to put myself out there. I'm just going to hide this and bury it. How many people do we know that have closet talents that can sing or that can write or that can deliver motivational speeches, but they're too afraid to invest and really to pour into that talent and they just hide it? God says, That's the worst thing that we can do is to poorly steward the talents that have been invested with us. If you haven't had a chance to read the story of the talents, I highly recommend it. And at some point in the future, we are going to cover that on its own podcast because it's a story that you can pull a lot of great truths and wisdom from. Next up, Moses was a steward over the Israelites. Certainly not the first. We could say that Abraham would have been one of the very first stewards of the Israelites, but God chose Moses to lead his people who'd been suffering for four centuries under a slaver's yoke, that is Pharaoh, and to take them out of Egypt. Moses later used his stewarding and mentoring in his role as Joshua's mentor to prepare Joshua to lead the children of Israel after Moses passed away. Joseph not the Jesus Joseph, but the Old Testament Joseph, was a steward over all of the produce of Egypt. We remember that Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and because of it, Joseph was exalted to a position second in command to Pharaoh. And at this point in time, Pharaoh would have been the most powerful person in the entire world. So to be second to the most powerful person in the world is a pretty heavy responsibility. And Joseph knew that there were going to be seven good years, seven years of bumper crops, of incredible produce and prosperity in the land of Egypt. And they knew that they were going to have more than they were going to need. In fact, so much more that it was going to get them through the seven years of famine that were going to follow. Now, 
I can't imagine the faith that it would have taken Pharaoh to put all of this trust in a man who was essentially around 30 years old when this happened, had been a prisoner or servant, depending on how you want to look at it, in the land of Egypt for 13 years. But Joseph proved to be a good steward. He carefully cared for, and not only did he carefully care for, he put a system together of logistics that could rival some of the systems we currently have in our 21st century world. He went through all out the country of Egypt and made depositories where grain could be stored at multiple different places. This is very smart. This is very much like a diversity of a portfolio in that he didn't put all of his eggs in one basket. He made sure to spread things out so that if tragedy struck or you know, um, war or what have you happened in one place, it wouldn't destroy the food supply. And in essence, it allowed the Egyptians to live. I have a couple of scriptures I'd love to hit on this, and I think this will help carry us into our, our questions for this week or our, the points we're going to try to make. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as they will have to give an account. There's that word again. Ephesians 6, 9 says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, we're talking about God here, and that there is no partiality with him. Again, we're talking about masters treating their servants fairly. Lastly, Colossians 4, 1 says, Masters, treat your, serv- your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is important because a lot of times people think, if I'm the ultimate authority on earth, then that's where the story ends. But that's not the case, at least not for the believers. And it's certainly not the case for non-believers at the end of time. What it's saying here is that while you may be a master on earth, you are still not the master over everything. All of us have someone we have to give an account to, so we need to be aware of that as we're leading others. Now, an important side note on slavery, and we don't have enough time to cover the entire topic, but I think it's important that we put this into context just a little bit. First of all, slavery in biblical times was different from modern slavery. First of all, slaves were to be set free every seven years. If you were a slave in a Jewish household, you were to have the option to be freed after seven years. Now, if you wanted to stay with your master, you could, and you would be his servant or slave for the rest of your life. But in a similar fashion to the year of Jubilee, every seven years, you had to erase the debt, essentially, of that slave. And that's really important, too. Slaves were sold to pay for a debt. Usually what you did was you sold yourself, Uh, If you had some kind of a debt that you couldn't pay back, people would sell their families, people would do this. This was a very common practice in biblical culture because that was the only way that sometimes you could make a debt right. Next, slaves came from conquering other nations. Typically, if you did not kill all of the people you conquered, they became your slaves. And lastly, Masters, and we kind of just touched on this in Colossians, masters were still expected to treat their slaves well because, and here's another angle we can look at, they were still creations made in God's image, and that made them sacred. I think this is a really important concept we need to remember, that no matter who we're talking to, these are always people that were made in God's image, just like us. As priceless as you and I are is as priceless as everyone else that we come in contact with, and we need to think of them that way. We need to have that same kind of perspective. So, 
How can we be good stewards of those we are leading and influencing? How can we help the people that we have influence and authority over to reach their full potential? Well, we have four thoughts we're going to cover today. First, we start by identifying the vision they have for their lives so we can help them reach it. Now, you might say, well, that's easier said than done. You're absolutely right, because this means we have to take the time to really get to know our followers. We have to really get to know those that we have influence over. This can't just be a cursory, hey, how you doing, when you pass them in the hallway. This has to be, tell me a little more about yourself, or hey, didn't I hear that you have something special coming up in your life that's X, Y, or Z? This is the only way that we're ever going to identify the vision that other people have for their lives, is to learn about these people. And second, in that same thought, we have to be okay with the fact that this could mean they will leave us one day. There are so many times that, unfortunately, leaders and managers are selfish, and they say to themselves, if I help this person reach their full potential, if they actually find out how special and gifted they are in this area, they're going to leave me. Well, you know what? That's a good thing, because what that means is not only are they reaching the vision that is cast for their life, but you now are seen as the leader that helps people reach full potential. You become something special because people start seeking you out by saying, I want to study from this person because they're going to help me reach my goals. And in the meantime, you and your organization are going to benefit from having this higher level caliber people coming through your doors. This is very similar to the starting story of Teachers for America or Teach for America, where Initially, this was a program that they really, and it's crazy to think about the sell of it, they wanted people to, after they finished in a very expensive Ivy League four-year program to become teachers, to go teach in poverty-stricken, low-income, high-risk school districts. And after a certain amount of time, this became such a badge of honor to have on your resume that they now have a waiting list, that they now have people who want to do the program, and they don't always have spots for them. What an incredible place to be in your process of a charity. So get comfortable with the fact that your people are probably going to leave you. That's a good thing. They get to go on to what they were called to do, and you get a chance to bring in new, fresh people that are going to benefit from your tutelage and your mentoring. Our second point, we need to know what makes our followers cry. Now, I don't mean this from the horrible bosses or from the Gordon Ramsay Hell's Kitchen sense. What I mean is where is their passion or their purpose for outreach? Where's their purpose and passion for charity? What is it that God has put on their heart? What burden is there? I've heard it put before that when a pastor is writing one of the sermons, he was praying for what burden God was going to give him. What an interesting perspective. What is it that is going to stir them to action? What is it that touches them in their heart? And when we do that, we are trying to align their burden with something in the form of a community outreach that our organization does. So for instance, if you have an organization that partners perhaps with a children's organization or a hospital organization, you want to identify those people in your organization that are really going to not only benefit and grow from that, but to really help your organization shine because you've picked people that are really suited for that kind of a role. So number two, we need to know what makes them cry or what touches their heart. Number three, we need to know what makes them sing. 
or what is it that they find deep meaning in? What is it that fills them up that no matter what, if they come home after a 12-hour day and they are dog tired, they are still so full of energy, still so full of joy because they found fulfillment in their job. Now, you might say, well, that's great, but why do I care if they're fulfilled? And why do I care if they find meaning in their job? Well, I'll tell you, employees studies show that are able to find meaningfulness in their job have a myriad of benefits. And if you are, they're more likely to perform better, they have lower absenteeism, and they have higher loyalty. What else does that mean for the business? That means higher productivity, cutting waste, lower absenteeism, again, see higher productivity, cutting waste, and higher loyalty. Spoiler, cutting waste through the fact that you don't have to waste as much money on recruiting. It's in the best interest of the company, as silly as it sounds, to take care of their employees, to help them find meaningfulness in their job. If you want to be truly selfish in your company, which I'm not saying you should be, but what's interesting is the selfish and the gracious and generous employer would both find themselves down the same road on this. If you want employees to perform better, have lower absenteeism and higher loyalty, help them find meaningfulness in their job. Number four, and our last point on this subject, we need to know what they dream about or what is their vision for the future. Now, I won't say anything as cliche as where do you see yourself in five years? Because for the most part, none of us could give an accurate accounting of that unless you have an incredibly specific plan that will not be derided by the various variables that life will put in their way, it's difficult to go that far out. However, I do think that through prayer and thoughtful reflection, and perhaps through the help of, you know, some kind of occupational counseling or, you know, someone who can give us an idea of what we're called to do, most of us know what our purpose is. And Another sidebar, I think it's important that we distinguish between the difference of purpose and passion. Passion is something that is very emotional, so it could be very fleeting, and it's incredibly myopic. It's difficult to cast a broad net with your passion. However, your purpose is something quite different. Your purpose is what you were created for, and your purpose can usually be found anywhere. For example, my purpose is to teach, and given that my job is not specifically as a teacher full-time, it would be very easy for me to say I'm not doing my passion. However, I am doing my purpose because I get to teach in my current job. I get to teach part-time with a university, and I get to teach doing this podcast. So these are all up arrows for me. And if I was stuck with the mindset or the perspective that I'm not doing my passion, I could be very frustrated and disappointed and disillusioned. However, I've chosen to focus on my purpose. And because I'm focusing on my purpose, I'm actually able to find fulfillment in my myriad of jobs. So number four, we need to know what they dream about. Where do they see themselves going in life? What is their purpose? So how do we apply that? What do we do with that in the work life? Well, we identify areas of weakness that need to be addressed for our people to reach their vision. We, as their leaders, will benefit from their professional development. Again, it's a win-win. And I think these are actually possible. In his book from the 1980s, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey covers a lot of ground on the subject of win-win. It's possible. We don't have to have zero-sum situations where in order for me to win, you have to lose. There are times 
And I think, especially if we're approaching it from how God would want us to do things, there can be win-wins. So when we go out of our way to help our people through assessments or one-on-one mentoring sessions or from evaluations, see where their weaknesses are or where their areas of improvement could be, then we get the opportunity to help develop them. And the company wins because they have better developed people doing the jobs there. Again, see back to meaningfulness. And the employee, your, your follower, your team, they win too because you've helped develop them. You've made them better prepared for wherever their vision is going to take them. So now we come to our final thoughts. These are the open-ended questions that I want to leave you with. And I would love to see you bring to your followers, to your teams, to your groups for further discussion and dialogue because we've just scratched the surface of how we can steward the vision for our followers. Thought number one, as a leader, what can you do to assess your followers' strengths, weaknesses, and vision for the future now? What assessments can you give them? What books could you offer them to read? What consistent scheduled mentoring sessions could you put in place now that are going to help your followers improve their strengths, minimize their weaknesses, and help them cast a clear vision for their future? Thought number one. Thought number two, what win-win strategies could you start to put in place now? How can you help develop your people so that, number one, they are in a better position to achieve the vision that's set out for their life, and for two, the company or your organization is going to benefit because they have better trained, more focused, more engaged employees. Thought number two. Number three, our last thought. How can you intentionally model stewardship to your followers? Now, I know this is a bit of a meta subject because essentially we're saying, how can you be a good steward of stewardship? But let's see, let's see what this for really, what it really is. How can you intentionally model stewardship to your followers? What I mean by that is how can they look at you and see stewardship in what you're doing? How can they look at you and see this is a person who is taking on the mantle of being a caretaker, custodian for the talents and the potential and the vision that is placed in every one of their employees? And remember that when we take the time and the intention to help grow and to steward those that are around us, not only are we being obedient to God our Creator, but we are respecting and validating the fact that we are all created in God's image and that we are all sacred, beautiful, and loved. I want to thank you for joining us this week. And remember, as followers of Christ, we are called to glorify God in our actions, to grow God's kingdom through our example, to be a positive influence on others by doing the King's business. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you.